All right, welcome back to another episode of the BAT podcast. Howard, Zach, and Alex here for episode number 30, guys. Amazing. And uh, and for 30, uh, the three of us in three different locations, at least uh, uh, a little bit of a milestone for me as well. Yeah, back to remote. Hopefully the audio quality won't, won't stir up uh, too much controversy. No, a real tribute to remote work that we're, we're uh, in three uh, remote locations. Um, hope you guys had a good week. I'm stoked for, for uh, episode 30. We got some neat topics. Um, man, I was, I was invited this week to go to the Road and Track Performance Car of the Year event at Monticello Motor Circuit Race. This is the way you're going to tell Alex and I we did not get invited. Yeah, no, but the, the thing is, it sounds awesome. You get to go up there drive all the sickest cars for you know on the track and around the the back roads there but i have already committed to go to my buddy's wedding in philadelphia which overlaps so it sucks because now all of a sudden this monticello performance card of the year p cody as they call it sounds way more fun than this wedding that i got to schlep to on a train to philadelphia but what can you do yeah be honest are they gonna last anyway that experience at road and track will probably be forever though but I, I think you and I have the exact same helmet size. So if they need someone to fill in for you, I'm, I'm very so available. Back to back, Cayman 718, Ram TRX 1500, F8 Tributo Ferrari. I mean, who knows what they're bringing out there. I want to slam curbs at Monticello and the Ram TRX. <laughs> that sounds so awesome. Man, Howard, I'm, uh, I'm really jealous of that invite. Uh, do you have any idea about what kind of, uh, what kind of cars are going to come out? Did they give you a teaser on that? Maybe you're not allowed to spill the beans on that. Oh, you want me to see if that invite's transferable? It, 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 it possibly is. Yeah, I think uh, Alex and I are going to have to bid for it between each other. Totally, totally have to duke it out. That's awesome, Howard. I'm uh, really glad that you got okay, that. Okay, I'm looking at the list now because I am curious. Ram I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's like supercars. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit everything. But um, historically on those kinds of, you know, best car of the year type tests, all the magazines have brought kind of an interesting selection. I remember back in the day, you know, there'd be, a, you know, uh, they'd bring an Integra at the same time, you know, and bring an S2000 or a Lotus uh, Elise. And then, of course, some supercars, too, which I think. I, is yeah, I, I've always been into these yearly supercar shout outs for lack of a better term but i would say in 2021 pretty much every performance car is a supercar i mean it's just eye-watering what numbers are coming out so do you want me to go down the list of what what uh you're missing out on howard uh is this the list for this upcoming event for yeah for this i'm looking at 2021 road the contenders for performance car of the year right now hit us with it zach i want to hear Okay, 781 Cayman T, uh, which is, I don't know, a little bit of a tweener trim model. I think it gets the lower spec engine, but I don't know. It probably has lighter doors. Like a uh, little interesting on that one. The new mini John Cooper Works GP, which I'm actually pretty into those. I think those are sweet little city cars. Probably have I probably has almost as much performance as the uh, as the Cayman T, which does. I was looking at those the other day. They do indeed have the two liter, the base engine, but with like upgraded suspension and stuff. I know. Why not just spring for the two five and the S? But uh, you know, I'll, I'll save my strong opinions for myself, I guess. Here, anyway, the new CLA forty five, which looks so. I guess with Mercedes right now, it's what size do you want? It looks exactly like the larger one. It's tough to tell in this image. 
Okay, well, that makes me feel better. I'd rather see my my old college buddies than drive a CLA 45. So that I'll, I'll hang my hat on that. Uh, the new Continental GT V8, which is pretty sweet. I could see you cruising to Michigan in that, Howard. Maybe not this year, but once you can get one CPO'd. Ooh, Conti V8 Vert. That's, uh, yeah, that's one. Coop, Coop, baby. Oh, Coop, Coop. Driving in the fall. Uh, the new F-Type, which looks pretty sharp. This this is the wild card, I think, for this year. The Polestar 1. Are you guys up on that? Is that the sedan thing or is that the big coupe? It's the big coupe. It looks like a, a retro 1800 coupe. Yeah, those are stunning. Remember, we saw those at the old BAT office when they were you were you guys there for that when they pulled up during like a press release launch to fill up their to charge up? Yeah, looks fantastic. I was there at the man. It's basically like a gas station for electric cars. Yeah, pay at the pump and everything. Yeah, they look so fantastic. I'm curious how they drive, but for making a statement, pulling up in that thing, I don't know that yeah. or the Bentley. That or or the LC, Zach. I know you're a big fan of the LC. I actually like the Volvo better than all of them in terms of looks. I, uh, Zach, I lost track. I, I just assumed like a private equity company bought the Polestar name and was repurposing it for a number of things, but I, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, very versatile SEO on that one, I'm sure. Um, M8 competition. Uh, I, I, it's hard to even give a thought on that car, honestly. Is that a competitor to the Volvo to the Volvo? Is that like are they kind of in the same bracket or not? Really? I think that the eight series is what the six series was, but maybe a little larger. Didn't they axe the six series? It's the it's the big BMW coupe. Interesting. Volvo is um, a little smaller. Then we got Ram TRX and the new GT five hundred Mustang. Wow. Anyways, that that uh got me thinking then to uh to a topic that I don't think we've ever discussed on the podcast, but which is very much uh, uh, relevant to our, our daily lives and, and roles that bring a trailer. And, and that's the whole discussion around mileage and specifically kind of the obsession with low mileage on, on primarily later model cars, but kind of across the spectrum. I mean, obviously it's mileage in general is, you know, such a primary factor in evaluating collectability and, and all that sort of stuff. So um, we can take this a number of ways, but, uh, the three of us definitely have some, have some thoughts uh, on the subject and I'm sure the community, um, does as well. So we thought this was a, a worthy discussion point. Uh, yeah, the community often has critical, uh, critical thoughts, uh, about cars that don't get driven. A lot of people feel very passionately that collector cars should get driven. I think all three of us feel that way. I certainly do. Um, one of the things like that might help frame this, Howard and Zach, since this is your literal day to day, I'd be curious what what you guys think about how mileage impacts value. Like, how does it how does it impact what what is what is the what is kind of your thought as you evaluate cars that are low mileage in terms of how it impacts the value? Oh man, yeah, late model cars it it's closely correlated to their values, and in part because it's pretty much the only distinguishable factor on a large selection of newer automobiles, right? If you're looking at six different SL55s and they all have good service histories with the ABC pump replaced, what, what actually differentiates those cars? It's really sort of their use and the number on the odometer for better or for worse. Yeah, I would say, interestingly, when evaluating cars, there's probably no single 
uh, factor that guarantees a price premium more than, than documented low mileage. Um, and, and as Zach pointed out, it is often for, for later model stuff, kind of the, the primary, if only differentiator uh, among cars, right? People who have uh, right, a, like 10 LaFerraris, they're all red. Well, what does everyone want to know? Like, what's the lowest mileage one if, if you want to quote unquote buy the best? Um, you know, we always make an effort to not have uh, uh, kind of more special higher dollar cars uh, overlap. Uh, if we have similar cars in our pipeline, which we often do, we try to stagger auctions so we don't have uh, overlapping auctions for competing cars. And uh, what caught my eye this week is we have two Ford GTs. One has a thousand miles. You might think that's maybe one of the lowest mileage uh, examples we've listed, but no, we also have live this week a Ford GT with three miles. And so, you know, a thousand miles in, in the big picture, that's right, low mileage, super low mileage, ultra low mileage. You know, then we got this three mile dark horse. Um, and yeah, we're, we're very comfortable having both those cars live because, you know, they are uh, kind of miles apart, uh, pun intended, in terms of uh, who might be looking at them. Yeah, it's uh, the, the ultra low mileage cars, those cars with the, um, with the, you know, single digit or double digit miles on them uh, are probably never going to get driven. And so to me, you know, theoretically, somebody might drive the thousand mile Ford GT around the block uh, or even put, you know, 20 miles on it or maybe even a couple hundred. Everybody's got a hike over reunion to go to. <laughs> totally. But you, it seems hard to believe that anyone would ever actually drive that three mile car. And so, you know, I like, I kind of wonder, um, uh, you know, what you guys think about the, the kind of the difference between uh, the values on, on cars like that, right? I mean, you, with a car that you're never going to drive, it's, it's, you know, like there's a, some, some, you can't even theoretically conceive of driving it. There's some amount of value, at least to me, taken away from the fact that all you can do is look at it. What do you guys think about that? Uh, yeah, well, wonderfully articulated, Alex. I, I mean, some people just love to own something for the sake of owning it. That's mine. It has three miles. There's, it's one of, you know, four left in the world with mileage that low. And I like saying it and it makes me happy to see in my garage. So I totally get that. And I respect that from a collector standpoint. For me personally, I'm, I think you and I are super aligned. We, we'd like to use them, man. That's like the point, drive them. I yeah, think no. yeah, people people get uh, you know in, in the comment section of any uh, you know higher profile listing that's super low mileage. There's there's always the comments of what a shame it hasn't been driven hasn't been driven. But you know people enjoy cars. You know the experience of ownership in different ways. And if if you love what you own and it happens to be a museum piece and, it, and you don't drive it, but you have other cars you drive, that's okay with me. I don't you know it's like people who are wine collectors. I don't hear people saying oh you know, you don't like, how do you, how do you have a, a cellar full of wine? You never drink any of it. I mean, maybe that does exist. I'm not that I'm in the wine world, but um, it's, it's kind of owning something that you know, has a use case, but you can also, you know, just enjoy it outside of that primary use case. Uh, we, we could probably figure out other examples, but um, you know, people have all sorts of reasons for, for owning, owning what they do. You you driving your Nissan Versa around is basically like the wine collector sipping on Yellowtail on weeknights. Is that what you're getting at? 
Well, <laughs> also there's, you know, part of this whole mileage discussion is, is one kind of, yeah, what, what cars are most uh, kind of sensitive to mileage and, and when does mileage stop mattering and for what models, right? If we list a, you know, uh, 93 Land Cruiser with, you know, 35, 40,000 miles, that's, that's noteworthy, you know, but uh, 89, 328 GTS with 40,000 miles, you know, that's kind of higher mileage, uh, you know, for better or worse. Um, or a Mark III Healy, nobody really cares what the odometer says because it's been rebuilt two different times over the last 50 years. Right, and it stopped working for 10 years. Uh, yeah, that's tricky. You know, the older cars with ultra low miles are always interesting um, from a kind of auction, like listing description perspective. So the folks who work on my team are thinking about this all the time in terms of, you know, a guy who comes in the door with an E-type and he's like, it's only got 5,000 miles, but it's a 50 year old car and there's no paperwork or documentation on it. It's like, does it really have 5,000 miles? Uh, hard to actually know about that. People always want to assert that the odometer is accurate, but you know, uh, without any kind of story or, or paperwork to back it up, uh, I'm always a little skeptical. Right. P part of that is the, the change over from a five digit to a six digit odometer, right? That's, that's kind of in the discussion. Um, you know, on that note, Alex, I think, you know, low mileage when it is advertised uh, also kind of uh, subconsciously confers this absolute originality dynamic, which isn't always uh, uh, true, right? Like a car that has super low miles, but it was parked outside for 20 years. And so it was repainted and reupholstered. So, you know, I think people want the originality component uh, hand in hand with, with the low mileage. And when you don't have that, it's, and, and, you know, me and Zach uh, do this every, every week, uh, right? Like what's, what's the discount? You got the low miles, but it's been repainted and, and there's this and there's that. So it's, it's not always, you know, the straightforward uh, uh, story that, that people hope it might be. Yeah, I, you know, uh, the, the folks who are writing our BAT listings and who are editing them, they agonize over this stuff because, you know, people do, uh, buyers and sellers too. I mean, everyone in the car world values so much kind of originality and preservation, um, but it's so hard to confirm. And, you know, so often we've seen people claim one thing and then, you know, you find a document or somebody looks closely at a picture and it turns out that the claim wasn't true. People, sellers particularly who have a vested interest in the sale price, obviously are very interested in making as bold a claim they can about uh, as bold a claim they can about originality or low miles. And, you know, Zach was mentioning earlier that we like to drive cars, the three of us on this call. And I think a lot of, a lot of folks, especially kind of younger folks who are interested in uh, collector cars like to drive them. And I value it a lot. But I, uh, it's maybe a little bit of a hot take. I actually really like the ultra low mile kind of preserved cars, especially if we can confirm that they've been sitting in some guy's showroom for 20 years or we know where it was. So it's almost, almost certain that the car does have 12 miles or 27 miles or whatever it is. We had a GNX, I think with seven miles on it or something like that. Um, I actually think those cars are really cool and I love seeing them come through, even though we know they're never going to get driven because even when it's a mundane car, it's, you know, maybe one of the last ones that exists in that condition. And so you really get kind of a, a glimpse back at the past in a way that historical significance is so cool. It's like, oh, man, that's the one that's as good as that will ever be. That's the last bottle of that vintage from this year. Uh, and yeah, you can really enjoy it. So I, I always give a shout out to the guy that does that and then enjoys it slowly himself. But I'm, I'm a little curious also 
have you guys personally owned a car where you felt the mileage anxiety and like you were driving the value out of your automobile every time you started it up and took it out? That's happening to me right now for the very first time. Uh, I bought this this kind of late model rare 911, a GT3, and I'm putting, I crossed the dreaded 30,000 mile um, mark and I bought it to drive it. And now I'm, I feel like when I use it for a mundane task to go to the store or just to drive down to see my parents, I, yeah. It, 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 oh, it almost lowers your self-esteem. It's crazy how much your head is wrapped up in that, that number on the odometer. Uh, and I'm trying to start a support group online for to help people that are going through what I am calling mileage anxiety. Well, so, Zach, you, uh, what Alex just said, you, you know what I'm going to say as far as uh, the, the 30,000 mile mark, uh, and, and you remind me every day, um, I've got a, a F355 uh, with, with uh, Berlinetta Ferrari with 29,000 miles and change. And it's so dumb, this thing about 30,000 miles and crossing over, but it, 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 is, it is something that's not just in, in people's imagination. Uh, and I think it's so stupid. So the best uh, part in the Ferrari world is that you'll keep it at that exact same mileage, but still do another engine out service in six to eight years. <laughs> no, I don't care. I'm, I'm just going to go drive. I'm just going to go drive at 500 miles one weekend and just, just close my eyes when it crests 30. Just rip the bandaid off. Yeah. Burn through a box of that great red wine you shared with us in Monterey. Uh, yeah, totally. Just blow maybe you'll even smoke a cigar in it. Just, just really, really take all the value out of that thing. Uh, but like, you know, the, the flip side to it, Zach, is, you know, I've had this same old Porsche 912 for over 20 years and like, I don't give a shit how many miles I put on it and it feels awesome, right? It feels awesome to have a car that you don't care about, you know, beating on and using it and leaving it outside. I mean, that is an amazing thing. And oh, I'm, it's so liberating. Yeah, I would kind of like the GT3 to be that way. It's awesome. But like, you know, I... I, at the same time, even as terrible as I feel, you're right. I feel like a total dude. You just need one good curved wheel and a little bit of a dent in the driver's door, and then you'll be there. Yeah, but then you fear the next dent. I don't know. It's a weird psychological thing that happens. It doesn't make any sense. I hate it. But but, but yeah, I think what we're getting at is you have to mentally commit to owning that. So the 912, you're going to have for the rest of your entire life and hopefully pass down to your children. And it's a harder mental commitment to own a, a high dollar object like that and pile pile miles onto it. But if you can get over that hurdle, oh man, that's that's pure nirvana right there. Just driving your nice car that you've lusted after for years on end and really enjoying it. But yeah, no, to, to close the loop on what you were saying earlier, uh, Alex, and, and to kind of take a page out of Miles Collier, Miles Collier's book, um, the, the uber, uber low mileage uh, cars, they do become like an artifact and that they are the best, you know, surviving example of, of what that is um, and, and the most authentic. And, and so that's, you know, I think I think part of the discussion. But yeah, no, in terms of these kind of uh, mileage thresholds, real or imagined, where, you know, some level of collectability or value is somehow diminished when you cross over them. I don't know. And in 10 years is 40,000 miles going to be the new 30,000 miles or, you know, pick your moving target. Uh, no, with F355s, it's always going to be 30. I'm sorry. Always, yeah, that's right. It might go the other oh, way. It might become, it might become 19,000 miles. You can't go over 20. Based on the threads on the F chat forums, 30,000, there's no going back. Sorry, buddy. 
But I, I'm a little curious on the other side of that. When is when do you guys see ultra low mileage as a detractor? And an interesting example of this, which I don't think you could say it detracted, but I expected to see it sell a little higher, is the McLaren F1 that just went through Monterey. Were you guys paying attention to that car? This is the green one. It's like a one-off color. This was... I think it may be verified as the lowest mileage example. It's 242 miles on the odometer. It sold for uh, a very humble uh, $20 million. But on a percentage basis, it's pretty interesting. One with factors of the car world and how much collectibles are going up. And that's, you know, among the greatest sports cars of all time. Just, uh, yeah, about five years ago, a 10,000 mile um f1 sold right around 15 or 16 million so it's not quite the proportional ladder of seeing that car sell well and above because it had 200 miles i my speculation is whoever got it knows they have to do a bunch of service work because it's been sitting for 20 years um so i don't know what, what do you guys think about mileage in general and being a detractor i mean for the buyer of that car i mean this is again you know i'm just presuming but like maybe people who buy an f1 actually want to drive it i mean that, that, every time you hear someone talk about a mclaren f1 they talk about how amazing it is to drive it i mean is somebody gonna get in that and ring that v12 out wind it out to 7,000 rpm or whatever probably not so like that's a lot of money to pay to not have that experience i think i think that's right i, I think yeah the it, it depends if the low mileage is a result of of years and years of of atrophy um, and thus a huge service bill uh, then relative to the total value of the car. Like what comes to mind for me is Bonham's a couple of years ago had an amazing collection of, of uh, group B homologation cars um, that were all from somewhere in South America, I think. And, and they were all low mile and super original, but they'd all been sitting for 25 years. And especially with those kind of highly specialized high performance stuff of any era uh, that's so expensive to work on, much less find people to do it. Uh, like, I think a lot of people would rather have a car with 20,000 more miles that was on the button and, and, you know, fully serviced with a service, you know, history file rather than, you know, something that's been sitting in a barn since, you know, 1983. So, um, yeah, my, my mind goes to, you know, the, how did, how did it uh, accumulate those miles or lack of miles? And, and what does that mean if you're buying it? I mean, with that McLaren F1, like, why the hell even bother to service it, right? That car's never going to get driven, right? I mean, like, I think that probably happens with some of these ultra low mile cars, 20 years without a service, right? Like that car can probably actually never really be a runner, right? Like unless you're going to rebuild the engine, which then, you know, ruins some of the, the preservation of the car. It's, it's quite the catch 22, isn't it? It is. That's why you, that's why I buy a car that you can drive. Like that's, I, I guess that's where I end up at the end, even though, uh, I like the idea of looking at either an auction or in person, a car that's preserved just to see, you know, to imagine what it, what it would have been like to sit in a, you know, a DeLorean in 1981 or a GNX in 1987. Um, I don't actually want to own that car. I want to be able to drive it. Other interesting phenomenon, uh, which gets back to sort of what we kicked this off with, uh, is when mileage is, is no longer really special or a differentiating factor in terms of collectability. And I think no model uh, embodies this better than the S197 Shelby Mustangs. So many people bought those around 2010 or so and put them away and then never drove them. 
And now having ultra low mileage on those cars is actually not particularly special because there's so many out there. They made them in reasonable numbers and a lot of collectors scoop them up to try and speculate on their future. So, so having- Jack, fantastic point. Yes, that S197, uh, uh, C4, C5 Vets to a degree, cars- What about Vipers? We were just talking about Vipers. Lots of low mileage Vipers with all these crazy special editions. The Vipers are interesting because it's actually- it's, it's sort of beating the, what the Mustangs aren't quite achieving. People are really excited about Vipers with those mileage, but. What do you think is the difference there? Are, are the people who are buying the low mileage Vipers also want to sit on them? Is that why? Well, the difference is, have you driven an S197? Have you driven a late model Viper? Uh, I think that's part of it. But I, I am also curious about where this hoarding mentality comes from. And I'm a, a little wondering if the generation that buys them saw all these preservation class, high dollar muscle cars selling in the early 2000s, late 90s, and then saw this as maybe a second opportunity to do the same. I don't know. It, it's interesting though. Cars, oh, sorry, go ahead, Howard. No, cars with uh, very high production rates, high survival rates, yeah, the, the, the effect of low mileage uh, when so many have it goes down. But, but, you know, people were doing that with, you know, buying them and storing them away with, with GNXs and Grand Nationals and IROC Zs. And, and so I wouldn't say it's a new phenomenon, but it, it seems to attract uh, certain, certain types of cars. What were you saying, Alex? Yeah, well, it makes, makes me think about the future of restoration because you know, so many of the collector cars from the, from before the war, from pre-war, you know, thirties, twenties and thirties, and then also, you know, fifties, sixties, even seventies, like those cars all got driven. And so the cars that are super collectible from those eras uh, that trade at huge numbers, they're all restored. But 30 years from now, if all the nineties and two thousands cars were bought on speculation, like, is there even going to be, is there going to be a restoration industry for Vipers or are there going to be so many preserved Vipers that people don't really have to do it in the way that they restore old 911s or old Ferraris? Yeah, who is on there? Maybe it was the, uh, the uh, RPM Foundation uh, uh, fellow, but he, he pointed out, he always laughs when he sees repair shops that say, uh, you know, we, we specialize in every single model. Uh, right. So you're saying, does it, yeah, does it become more, more specialized uh, or can you create a whole business out of being the go-to, uh, you know, Viper shop? Yeah. Or is there even really Viper restoration? Because if you want a Viper in 2040, there's so many preserved Vipers that you can just go buy that don't need to be restored. Right. In a way that there aren't like, there's not some like sea of, you know, 1970 911s sitting in collections with 12 miles on them. Like those just don't really exist, right? There're probably a few, but most of those cars got driven. There was a different mentality when somebody bought a car like that in 1970. Oh, yeah, I like that you're getting on shifts in mentality of of using sports cars. Yeah, totally. I mean, like did did anyone speculate, even on like a Carrera RS, were people speculating on those as being low mileage collectibles 30 years down the road? I don't think so. The 1970s, famous for many things, but maybe the, the uh, decade with the uh, worst reliability for odometers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, careful uh, hitting the trip odometer button on your 1972 911 when you're driving down the road. 
God, man, you're going to get. Sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I didn't mean to derail us, but one other interesting dynamic of the mileage discussion, and this may sound like an oxymoron to many people, but the future collectability of electric cars and whether you believe it will exist or not, you know, Tesla Roadsters are really the sort of first what's coming out to be like a truly collectible electric car, I would say at least. And does mileage really matter on those at that point? Is it, is it how much battery percentage is left in your iPhone at the end of the life cycle or? The- well, and presumably those batteries go bad whether you use them or not at some point. There's like a shelf life on them no matter what. Some, something like, you know, the rubber hoses on your, on your you know. And there's something way different. I don't think anyone has the same nostalgia for driving around the, the original battery pack that they do of winding out your 68 911S 2 liter to redline, right? Yeah. So I don't know. It's a really interesting dynamic. I would say on the roadsters we've sold, mileage has not been particularly relevant. No, it hasn't. It's, is it related to the thing that Howard was talking about earlier, where it's it's you know the perceive it's the perceived the, mileage to me, uh, like Howard said earlier, is is related to not exactly that the car hasn't been driven much, but to its originality and to how much it's been preserved. So maybe that's what people care about on will care about on these cars that where there's, there's lots of low mileage one, like has the, has there been paint work? Has it been hit? Has it been, you know, preserved in the right way? Right. How much vape has been used in this Tesla Roadster? I'm really excited for Elon to get off the ground, the Carroll Shelby dash signature on all the Tesla Roadsters. I wouldn't put it past him. He'll totally be that guy. If there's a guy to to reenact that whole dynamic of signing the dash, Elon would be the guy. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, it's uh, it's rare that uh, for me and Zach um, in the course of our daily work that uh, cars get submitted that that genuinely uh, pique our interest in a in a new and uh, uh, and meaningful way. But but that uh, great way of saying we're dead inside, Howard. That is precisely what occurred uh, to me last week uh, when we uh, a car was submitted to us out of New Zealand of all places, which was. A 1923 Mercer Series 6, uh, and you'd all be forgiven if, if you don't immediately uh, know what that is. Um, uh, Mercer was an American uh, uh, car maker. This particular model kind of looks like a Stutz Bearcat, um, if that is helpful. Um, but it got me, and, and, and the guy that submitted it is super cool, and he pointed out that the builders of that particular car were the Roebling Brothers, uh, mostly famous for building the Brooklyn Bridge here in New York. Um, and it really got me going down a rabbit hole uh, of this whole history lesson. And, and Alex, this is, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to share on this subject. Um, but it really is useful if, if, if for any car enthusiast talking about whatever, whatever they're interesting, interested in, you know, the, the kind of dawn of the motor car and the motor racing era was was really driven in large part by kind of these you know, minted families from the, what, the Gilded Age, Alex, of, of the end of the 19th century. Um, uh, you know, you talk about Roebling and Vanderbilt and, and Duesenberg. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, a lot of these guys, and it was mostly guys, um, were interested in, in cars and in, in boats and yachts. 
Um, but the, the Roebling brothers, I was actually not fully aware that they had such a, a connection to cars and, and actually um, served as the president and, and were in, in the leadership positions of the Mercer Car Company. Um, uh, obviously, they, they had a, a suspension bridge business and built a number of, of notable famous bridges still standing today. Uh, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge kind of gets the, uh, the notoriety for them. But um, Alex, you're somewhat of an expert on this subject, but what can you tell us? Uh, certainly not an expert. I didn't even know that the Roebling family was involved with Mercer. I love Mercer raceabouts, um, and I'm you know, always happy to talk Duesenbergs. I love early motor racing, um, but I uh, uh, am a, kind of a, a history buff and um, have read uh, The Great Bridge by David McCullough, Pulitzer Prize winning um, historian David McCullough, which I, I strongly recommend to anyone. Uh, I've recommended it to a few of our colleagues, I think somewhat to their chagrin, but it's a, a really well-written book, History of Building the Brooklyn Bridge, the first great uh, suspension bridge. Um, and yeah, the Roebling family behind that and, uh, you know, civil engineers. And I'm, you know, uh, kind of really important in, you know, uh, in uh, laying out the infrastructure for early American, um, you know, transportation networks. And so unsurprising that some descendants of John Roebling were behind Mercer and and other and other car ventures. Um, John Roebling, uh, the the kind of uh, the the first famous Roebling, he was uh, the designer of the of the Brooklyn Bridge, and his son uh, Washington Roebling was the uh, uh, the engineer who ended up kind of carrying out most of the construction in the 1870s. Uh, Washington Roebling had been a cavalry uh, colonel in the Civil War. He was. He fought at Gettysburg. I mean, just so many cool tie-ins to the American story with the Roebling family. He actually got the bends. This is Washington Roebling. He got the bends uh, going down into the caissons that they sunk uh, down into the uh, into the riverbed to build the towers for the Brooklyn Bridge um, and was ill and oversaw the construction of the end of the construction of the bridge from his uh, riverside home in Brooklyn. Uh, and he lived until the 1920s. And I, it's probably his son, so probably would be his son, Howard. I'm not sure if you know this, who was behind Mercer, the grandson of the of the designer of the Brooklyn Bridge. Do you know how they how they tie in together? Uh, the son and the grandson. I mean, I, I mean, uh, uh, John moved uh, the company to Trenton, which is uh, uh, not coincidentally where Mercer uh, was based. Um, and started the the Roebling and Sons Company, and and so the, the Sons, as far as I understand, were, were not just uh, 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 playboys, a la Lance Lance Reventlow. That they actually uh, were active in the business, and I actually believe uh, Roebling was the primary uh, cable contractor for the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, so once you start talking about this stuff, you know there's so many connections to be made. Um, and Alex, was it Washington or one of them that was uh, aboard the the Titanic? And that's where they were killed or which one? I think it was Washington, might've been one of the sons. I think it was Washington's, um, I think it was Washington's son. It was either his son or his brother, or maybe a nephew of Washington Roebling who went down with the Titanic in 1912. That's right. And the big, you know, Americans were skeptical. A lot of people were skeptical of suspension bridges. They looked spindly. They didn't look like they could hold up weight. Uh, here we are, the uh, Brooklyn Bridge doing just fine 150 years later. Um, but uh, John Roebling Sr. had to do a lot of convincing of folks that um, the cables were strong enough to hold up all the weight uh, 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 that would, uh, you know, go across the roadway of the suspension bridge. And so 
the cable technique that he came up with. They used it on tons of suspension bridges. I didn't know about the Golden Gate Bridge uh, connection, but um, uh, yeah, somebody went down with the Titanic, like the Vanderbilts, uh, you, you know, connected, intertwined with uh, important events in um, American history, the Roebling family was. So to answer your question, the, um, the president of Mercer was John Roebling's son, Ferdinand, and uh, his nephew, Washington, uh, was, was the general manager. Um, and it's not surprising, right? Th these guys had a lot of success with, um, you know, very complex engineering and technology building bridges. So it's no wonder that, you know, they wanted to apply their, you know, these concepts and skills and talents to, um, to cars and motor racing. And I imagine, you know, building a car uh, uh, probably was much less complicated uh, and dangerous than erecting a bridge, uh, you know, in 1880. Um, and so it, it, it makes a lot of sense that they were, you know, so inclined to, uh, to dip their toes in the car world. For sure. I mean, early, early metal work, right? I mean, the Brooklyn Bridge is interesting because it's got stone towers, right? Um, everything is, is um, iron and steel later. Um, but, you know, they would have had experience with that, right? So there's some tie-in to building cars there, building strong but light structures. It makes total sense. Did they found Mercer, Howard, or did they buy it after it was already established? I, presumably somebody named Mercer started the company. Um, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, no, it, uh, their business partner was someone by the last name of Kusser, I believe. Um, so much like the 20s, earlier than that, at the, at, the, at the turn of the century, there was, as you know, hundreds of these uber small time car manufacturers and, and uh, uh, most, I would say, were effectively kit cars and assembled cars at some factory somewhere on the East Coast or the Midwest of the United States um, and, and, and literally hundreds. So Mercer started out as the American chocolate. I kid you not. No idea where that came from. I think maybe because it was uh, the assembly location was a chocolate factory. I think that's actually the, the story. Um, and it went through a few other names uh, before the uh, uh, Roeblings bought out their partners and, and, and named it Mercer. Um, so I'm sure uh, those listening with knowledge of this, uh, that was probably an uber watered down version. But, um, you know, you were right, Alex, the, the kind of iconic uh, Mercer is, I think, that the 35R race about. Um, which was kind of their uh, top of the line model. That was their, I guess, competition oriented um, vehicle. And, and that was kind of, yeah, in the era of, era of, of, of Stutzes and American underslungs. And that got me reading about, you know, the Vanderbilt Cup, which um, was, I think, the first international auto race in the United States, um, you know, specifically geared and, and to motivate, you know, in this, in this burgeoning, bustling kind of new car culture, um, specifically, they wanted to attract all these uh, or a number of you know, prominent European manufacturers to come race in the U.S. and showcase uh, what they had and, and which Vanderbilt was it? Uh, William oh, Vanderbilt II, the, uh, maybe the son, grandson, but uh, he, was into, he was into yachts and motor racing and he said, I'm going to go start this race. And that was, of course, uh, the, the first six or seven events were, were on Long Island here in New York and Nassau County. Um, they invited the likes of Dirac and, and kind of some of these obscure French uh, manufacturers who, who ended up being very successful. I think the first US American uh, winner was uh, possibly a locomobile in, I don't know, 09 or 10. But 
um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm only scratching the surface of, of this whole subject, but uh, oh, it, it is I quite mean, fascinating. You can go so deep on all of it. And, you know, the idea um, of industry in general being, you know, much more cottage, build, building cars in your, uh, in a small factory in your local town. Sometimes these early car companies are named after the little local town. I love it. I think it's really interesting. You know, labor was cheap and you had a lot of artisans who could build uh, who could do all kinds of interesting things. I mean, you know, the fledgling aviation industry, very similar, right? You think of the Wright brothers and some of the early, other early pioneers, both here in the United States and in France, building kind of airplanes in their, in, in their bicycle shop or in their garage, you know, uh, making all the parts by hand. It's a, you know, it's a completely different thing than what we have now, right? And like you say, hundreds of different manufacturers. Um, also an era when you're talking about um, you know, early car racing or early aviation races too. I mean, it's a, it's a way to showcase this new technology to the public, but also there's actual real trickle down from competition into, you know, advances for uh, vehicles that the public are going to buy, which, you know, really has kind of gone, it's gone the way of the Dodo in modern era. I don't know how much a modern Formula One car impacts any of the, any of the electric cars that you see driving around on the street, but in that Although area. It directly impacts the energy drink you're sipping on. <laughs> totally. But there's like real trickle down that you can see in a Vanderbilt Cup race or in, you know, these early, these, the early era of competition, right? And maybe even gets you excited about cars in general or airplanes in general, um, you know, really bringing the technology to the, to the masses. That's right. And, and a fun, fun bar trivia fact, we, we had talked about uh, uh, kind of what did, a, what did a new Corvette cost in 55 as kind of a, a barometer for, for car prices and inflation and whatever else you want to assign to it? Um, William Vanderbilt, Willie, as he was known, I, I think unlike the Roeblings, uh, I think Willie was, was quite busy, um, you know, mostly managing and finding a way to spend his inheritance and, and cars and boats were, were a wonderful uh, outlet for that. Um, he started the Vanderbilt Cup in 1904, uh, which happened to be the same year that in a Mercedes at Daytona Beach in 04, he set a new world land speed record. Uh, oh, wait, can I, can I guess? Can I guess before you say it? Uh, yes, Mercedes okay. 1904 Daytona Beach land speed record. What, what was his trap speed? So there's that. I mean, there probably were steam cars in the Vanderbilt Cup too. There's that canoe-shaped Stanley Steamer race car that did around that time, maybe a hundred. I'm going to guess that the gas car is not as fast. I'm going to guess 90 miles an hour, 94 wow. miles an hour. Wow, Alex, that is very impressive. The, uh, he was clocked at 92 miles an hour. Oh man. Have you ever seen that Stanley steamer, that like boat shaped thing that I think maybe was the first car to go over hundred and it may have been at Daytona beach also. Um, uh, that thing is awesome. That's maybe 1906 steam cars were faster. Uh, than gasoline powered cars, uh, or were at least uh, could be faster for some period of time. I think that's the second time I've talked about steam cars on this podcast. <laughs> I'm impressed, Alex. That was that was very uh, that was that was off the cuff, and and uh, your, your, all of your all of your expensive uh, education around around history is is really starting to pay off. Yeah, Sonoma State University and reading some McCullough, David McCullough books. Uh, I, I will do one more brief aviation tie-in because it gets me excited. Uh, Glenn Curtis, later an aviation pioneer uh, who fought in court battles with the Wright brothers until their companies were forcibly merged during World War I. Um, 
he was setting motorcycle speed records and he had a V8 powered motorcycle, a very lightweight air-cooled V8, as I recall, which later was a great uh, application, was applied to airplanes, right? Where you want a powerful but light engine. Uh, and he was going, I think, 100 miles an hour on a very early crude motorcycle on beaches around that same time, um, which is pretty brave. Brave enough to drive a, a car 100 miles an hour uh, right after the turn of the century, but imagine doing it on a motorcycle. And interestingly, the Vanderbilt Cup trophy lives in storage at the Smithsonian here in New York City, but is not uh, viewable to the public and, and has not been for, for many decades. How long does the Vanderbilt Trophy go, Howard? Does it go after World War One, or is it kind of end with the war? Uh, they did it through kind of the mid-teens, and then there were some breaks, and then I think it it um, uh, it was continued again in kind of the mid-30s for a few years, um, and then there was some kind of tributes to it in, in the 60s, I think, with some Can-Am stuff uh, at, at Bridgehampton. Um, which is a, a you know, defunct, I think Bridgehampton is now a housing development, but was a super cool track on, on Long Island. Um, what, did the, what did the race itself look like? It's a circuit of some kind, I'm assuming. And is it, it's not probably not purpose built. Is it a, on the roads? Uh, I mean, the original, the original uh, event, which was, I think, 04 to 11 or 12, 1904 to 1911 and 12 was uh, 25 or 30 miles on, on public roads around Nassau County uh, on Long Island. Um, and that was kind of the first uh, uh, instance where crazy fans, right, lining the streets, people running out in the middle of cars, you know, fatalities with with spectators uh, getting hit. So, um, you know, that 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 was a phenomenon that started, uh, you know, quite literally with with the very first uh, races. I would love to know the elapsed uh, the elapsed time or the average speed around that circuit in 1904 it would be fast. Yeah. I mean, probably 20 miles an hour. Think, you know, another thing that's so fascinating about that era with all of these kinds of records for speed is how fast things advanced, you know, um, uh, I, I, I wish I had the numbers in front of me for Indianapolis, but right, think about, you know, the first running of the race 1913 versus, you know, just 20 years later, I mean, you're never going to have the, the, you know, the, the speed picked up so much, so fast, so quickly, and the technology changed so quickly, just a super cool era, um, uh, for, for, for all those reasons. And, uh, yeah, I believe it was Ray, Har Ray Haroon that won the first Indy 500 race, but the last note about Mercer, uh, their first, uh, year in kind of a, a committed, uh, motorsports program of the six main events in the U S they won every single event, five out of six, except the Indy 500. So, yeah, I don't, I don't now that come to think of it. I don't know if there's, I don't know if a Mercer ever won the Indy 500. That's that's interesting. Uh, but I know it was extremely dominant, something like a prototype 35, right? A car that won almost everything, uh, the early race about. There's a second generation race about, isn't there too? Uh, one that has more body work on it. The reason I love the original one is there's nothing there. There's just no fenders. It's like a chassis with a little bit of a little bit of body work over the over the engine. And then it has that great monocle windshield that's clipped onto the steering column that's just right in front of the driver's face. I love that. Exactly right. Early teens were, were, were the more primitive design with the you know the fuel tank right behind the driver, and then later teens they had the the uh, more uh, cycle fenders and 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 bodywork. So that's right. Well, well done, guys. Episode thirty. I hope that we will do thirty more uh, in the next thirty weeks. I think that we will. Um, and what else, Zach? And any any final thoughts? We've we've gone from from uh, 
uh, low mileage Ferraris to 35 Mercer runabouts to yeah, Bearcats. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. Just sitting on a call with a couple of history majors here, uh, a little quiet in my corner. Sorry. I didn't have much to add. Uh, yeah, no, not things are good, man. You, have you guys been driving anything lately? You not so much Howard, New York, but Zach, aren't you, why don't you tell, why don't you tell us what you're doing in, in two hours from now? Oh, I'm going to do the closest thing to uh, endurance racing in my own life, which is drive I-5 from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And for those of you that don't know, that's sort of the main connecting highway between Los Angeles and Northern California. I think what are you could... driving? Oh, I check the NSX, cruise as well. I get, I've got my two, my two uh, fuel stops planned out. Hopefully, hopefully do it under two and a half minutes. Harris Ranch, Harris Ranch, one of your stops? Where no, you stop? I go, I go, um, yeah, I definitely select gas stations that have the lowest stabbing potential on I-5, which is crucial. I've got a great little setup right before the grapevine with all that weird outlet mall that just built is, you know, that area? Yeah, uh, I think it's called Tahone. It's right at the foot of the Tahone Pass. Yeah, uh, great, great, uh, incredibly clean bathrooms, my perfect gas stop, grid up, get out there, find, uh, yeah, cruise by some semi-truck psychopaths and then find whatever Honda Pilot is also driving it 90 miles an hour all the way down to LA and and that'll be my my bogey. Ooh, Alex. One more hot take for uh, for this podcast. I know that's a hated route. I actually love that route. I love being out in the kind of middle of nowhere on, in the uh, San Joaquin Valley. And you and I have had a couple of great runs down Zach in uh, in pairings of cars. And I uh, I love I love it. It's you know it's for a, a routine drive. It gets you kind of out in the open and seeing the great American West. I I, I enjoy it. I love that too. And I'm just so motivated by the I-5 psychology of two lanes wanting to go as fast as possible. And then you have the obstacles in the left lane that don't want to go as fast as possible. And then you have the semi-trucks, which adds such an interesting dynamic because they need to pass occasionally. And then when you do, entire freight train builds up when one semi is passing at 60 versus another at 55. So you the assholes who don't want to wait in line and they're trying to pass on the right and then cutting into the line. Oh man, there's so much human psychology. Out and then they still I would never cut someone off and then drive 78 miles an hour right in front of them for the rest of I-5. Well, Alex, Zach uh, can put his NSX in sixth gear on I-5, but you can't do that. Can you? I cannot. Uh, oh, now because I made you feel bad about the mileage on your F355, you got to bring Alex down too. <laughs> uh, I actually, um, the i5 is actually a great place for the, I know some people don't like the gearing on the early NSXs, but it's actually a really great place for that car um, uh, because, you know, you can downshift into third gear and do these nice long pulls uh, to get around people. So that's actually where the super tall gearing on a five-speed NSX kind of matters the least or is the most enjoyable to use. Um, but man, first, second gear and Zach's car is like a whole different world than my car, even though the power is not that different. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of yelling about VTEC in my car and my 290 horsepower V6 car. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. Uh, uh, send us a note to podcast at or in the comments, uh, a free shirt. If there's any actual descendants of, of the Roeblings listening to this, we'll mail that out to you and we'll be back next week.